The text for this morning is taken from the same letter, Philippians chapter 3. And we'll be focusing in on the verses 12 to, 12 to 16. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching toward those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever known someone who would just not let an issue drop? Maybe you've shown this person that they are wrong time and time again, but they still persist on hanging on to the issue. What's worse, they've managed to convince someone else of their mistaken view. Maybe a friend or a family member. And now you have to do damage control on two fronts. Trying to fix the source as well as correcting this other person. Do you find it frustrating when that happens? This is the situation that Paul finds himself in. He has dealt with the Judaizers before. He has tried to shut down that circumcision group, and yet their teachings keep on cropping up and causing trouble. They demand that each Christian, on top of being baptized, be circumcised. Since circumcision has no longer any spiritual value, it becomes becomes little more than mutilation, as Paul mockingly describes it. Their demand is for a legalistic following of the law. Their pride is in their accomplishments. Their boasting is in the flesh. And in doing so, they have lost Christ. As this is the case, Paul calls the Philippians to abandon all reason for boasting. Instead, he commands the Philippians, press on to the goal of knowing Christ and making him your own. We'll see first, leaving what is behind, and secondly, looking to what is ahead. How many of you, if I asked you to raise your hands right now, would say that you have gained Christ? Any of you? Kids, parents, grandparents? Have you arrived? Are you finished? Have you gained Christ? The question of gaining Christ is one of the big questions in our text. Paul is pointing out what exactly is ours, to what extent we have Christ. The truth of it is that the question is not exactly a fair one. We are in a phase which theologians describe as the already not yet phase. With Christ's coming, certain things have become ours. However, we haven't come to enjoy them in their completeness yet. 
bit by bit, they are coming to full bloom in the lives of believers. In this instance, the Apostle Paul is fully confident that Christ is his. And yet he speaks of gaining Christ. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. And yet Paul also says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has already laid hold of me. Verse 12. Paul understands that he has already been claimed by Christ. He understands that there is nothing more that he can do to further his own salvation, and yet that does not stop him. Paul also understands that he, being acted upon and moved by God, also is called to act for himself and pursue what he believes in. Paul has received a righteousness which is through faith in Christ. Because this is the case, he wants to be found in Christ on the basis of this righteousness. He wants to see the full reality of the power of Christ's resurrection found in him. He wants to join with Christ in his suffering. His suffering and his death. That is his passion. For those things, he is willing to put aside all else in order that by any means he may attain the resurrection of the dead. Compare what Paul is saying here to the life of a new Christian. Have you ever spoken with someone who is new to the faith? Such a person is often filled with zeal and enthusiasm. They believe the gospel. They are saved. And yet they relentlessly pursue the excellence of the knowledge of Christ. They devour the scriptures. They soak up the books of old dead men and some who haven't died yet, which talk about putting to death the flesh, the supremacy of Christ, the sovereignty of God, and the glory of what is to come, and more. Christ and he alone becomes their central focus. He is their all-consuming passion. Nothing from their past will divert them from him. No riches, no trouble, no suffering. They just want to know more. This is the drive which Paul is talking about. He wants Christ. And such a radical desire has radical consequences. All that we have All that we are takes second place to knowing Christ. Everything takes second place to knowing Christ. Consider Paul's life in the light of the beginning of this chapter for a moment. He was a pretty good guy by our standards. We see him as an incredible apostle who took the word of God across the Roman world. Due in a large part to his work, Christianity was able to take root in some seriously influential places. Compared to the Jews, he was the best of the best, the ideal, as we read. Paul was the super-Hebrew that men would have wanted their sons to be compared to. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law. Born in the right family, having the right bloodlines. He was a Pharisee with regards to the law, someone who spent all their time studying it and who was recognized as being among the holiest in Israel. 
He was a smart man, born in the right family, respected and with respect to the law, faultless. Let's bring this into the present. It's like someone in our circles who is born in a good family. There's no shame in that, right? You might have been baptized as an infant in the church and being involved in it from a very young age. It's a good thing. You could have zeal and a passion for protecting the church. You could have large sections of the Bible memorized. You could be a very good person compared to others who observe the law. All of these things are very good things. You can't get much better than that list by human standards. And yet all that, Paul counts as rubbish. Verse 8. Or translated literally, it's all a pile of excrement. The Greek that Paul uses here is pretty crude. Some of the early church fathers felt so awkward that they tried to translate it differently. Chrysostom, for example, used the word straws instead. But Paul says dung or waste. He wants to highlight how little he thinks of all his great accomplishments for the kingdom of God. Aren't Paul's words here extreme? Why does he use such radical language? You might imagine some of his companions here saying, Paul, tone it down a little bit. We want to draw people in, right? Well, Paul does not deny that these things do have some value. He does not deny that they are of some worth. But what he is getting at is that these things are nothing compared to the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus his Lord. It is possible to have all of those other things, to be a good and moral person, and yet at the end of your life, have your life described as rubbish. So what counts? What is of value in life if not these things? Verse 8, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. That, to Paul, is of infinite value. That, to Paul, is of infinite value. You don't stand before God as righteous on the basis of your own works. You may show up twice in church on Sunday and participate in Bible study, give 10% to the church, and read many theological works. These are all good things. These are all very good things, and things which are encouraged in the Bible. But they are not what makes us righteous before God. Faith in Christ Knowledge of the power of his resurrection, fellowship in his sufferings, and being conformed to his death are what make us righteous before God. This is what counts. This is what has value in life. Christ and Christ alone. When Christ alone is our passion and desire and nothing else hinders us in this, then we are truly free. And from that fortress, Paul is able to say the words at the beginning of the letter of the Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can you imagine the impact that would have had on those around him? When Paul faced Herod, when Paul faced Felix and Festus, 
When Paul was in contact with those who held him captive from his very first captivity to the one he is writing this letter from, can you imagine the impact that such an attitude would have had on them? What you do doesn't matter to me. While I live and breathe, I can spread the gospel. And when I die, well, that's even better. It it probably would have frustrated them to no end. Here's a man who can't be bought, flattered, bribed, or intimidated. And because he has already given everything up in his heart, he doesn't mind if it gets taken away in person. All that matters to him is Christ. Because Christ is his reason for being. At this point, you might say, this is, this is pretty extreme. Does, where do you find such strength for such single-minded passion? Does, does God really require that? The short answer is yes. We are required to serve God with a single-minded passion, which is willing to put aside all else. But there is comfort with these words. The initial words are, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of me. It is in Christ that we are able to do all this. Outside of him, you cannot find the strength for any of the above actions. You won't be willing to part with the things of the earth. You won't be filled with zeal. But if we look to him and we ask him for these things, he will grant them to us. We know that we haven't obtained a full knowledge of the power of Christ's resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. We don't grasp the total impact that being conformed to his death has on our lives. Otherwise, each of us would live and breathe a Christ-exalting existence from our first breath to our last. But by the grace of God, that will be our final goal. This should be what we desire and what we strive for and what we press on to lay hold of. But this should always be done in the fact that Christ has laid hold of us. We find our reason for existence in him and nothing else matters. Once we have grasped that, once we have fully grasp that, we can press on with reckless, God-glorifying abandon. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are his. And you are free to live a life free of earthly entanglements. Anything which you formerly took pride in becomes a vehicle by which you can bring praise to Christ. If, by the will of God, that which you can take, that which you can take pride in is taken from you as well, It isn't the end of the road. Rather, rest on this assurance. The ultimate joy and comfort is that Christ has taken hold of his saints and will not let them go. This leads us into our second point. Does the knowledge that we belong to Christ lead us to complacency? Does it let us go into autopilot? Paul says, absolutely not. He writes, Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, 
Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. By saying that he has not apprehended, Paul is not calling his salvation into question. The word translated as apprehend here has the idea of laying hold of something with your understanding to arrest or to seize. The catching is the same word as we can find in John 8 verse 4, for instance, where they describe a woman who is caught in the act of adultery. The, the catching implies a total control and understanding of everything that Paul was speaking of before. No, he has already said that he belongs wholly to Jesus Christ. Rather, what he is saying now is that he is on the road. He's on a journey to a better place. Some people are paralyzed by this. They think that because they do not fully know or understand the riches of Christ for themselves, the riches don't apply to them. But Paul doesn't speak in this way. He acknowledges that he hasn't attained the riches of Christ in their fullness, and that realization spurs him to action. Being joined with Christ, buried and raised with him, means that we are different. We need to abandon our old ways, our old habits, and our old patterns, and press on to take hold of Christ. Walking in newness of life, pressing on, involves sacrifice. It involves hard work. It involves regular Bible study. It involves time and prayer. Sometimes it involves giving up something we have worked for, suffering trials. It is in times like these that the words of Jesus should ring through. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. And even more powerfully, he says, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Consider those examples which we find in the past, those people who have displayed such an attitude. By faith, Moses, when he came of age, we read in Hebrews, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. He, like all the patriarchs, looked to Christ centuries before Christ arrived, knowing what God would accomplish. In the New Testament, the apostles went to great lengths and suffered many things as well for the joy of knowing Jesus Christ. Paul's words and attitude echoed strongly through the ages following him as well. Justin Martyr, for example, an early church father, wrote to the Romans, Since our thoughts are not fixed on the present, we are not concerned when men put us to death. Or Cyprian, an overseer and leader in Carthage, said in a letter to a friend, the one peaceful and trustworthy tranquility, the one security that is solid, firm, and never changing is this. For a man to withdraw from the distractions of this world, anchor himself to the firm ground of salvation, and lift his eyes from earth to heaven. He who is actually greater than the world can crave nothing, can desire nothing from this world, 
How stable, how unshakable is that safeguard? How heavenly is the protection in, its, never, in the, its never-ending blessings to be free from the snares of this entangling world, to be purged from the dregs of earth and fitted for the light of eternal immortality. And men in subsequent centuries also carried this same drive and passion. Guido de Bre, John Knox, William Carey, Jim Elliot, and more. Even our own missionaries, for instance, Reverend Whiskey, they carry such passion and conviction. They speak with such passion and conviction when they return to our midst. Such was and is the confidence of these men. Their focus was not on this world, but on the next. Their guiding light through the darkness was the upward call of Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ himself. It was because of him that people from the early church were able to leave all behind and travel to foreign countries and spread the gospel. It is by the power of Christ that they stayed behind when plague broke out and they were on the front lines caring for the sick even though it cost some of them their own lives. It was in this strength that they gave up all for the sake of Christ. Such behavior was so foreign to the people of Rome that they scoffed at it. In Paul's day, one Roman wrote in response, they, the Christians, despise the temples as houses of the dead. They reject the gods. They laugh at sacred things. Wretched, they pity our priests. Half naked themselves, they despise honors and purple robes. What incredible audacity and foolishness. They are not afraid of present torments, but they fear those that are uncertain and future. While they do not fear to die for the present, they fear to die after death. The same Roman went on to write, Where is the God who is supposed to help you when you come back from the dead? He cannot even help you in this life. Do not the Romans, without any help from your God, govern, rule over, and have enjoyment of the whole world, including dominion over you yourselves? In the meantime, living in suspense and anxiety, you abstain from respectable pleasures. You do not attend sporting events. You have no interest in public amusements. You reject the public banquets and abhor the sacred games. Thus, wretched as you are, you will neither rise from the dead nor enjoy life in the meanwhile. So if you have any wisdom or sense, stop prying into the heavens and destinies and secrets of the world. That was the view of Rome in Paul's day. Do you hear similar things today? You don't go out to watch the Leafs or the Ottawa Senators play on a Sunday. You have no interest in the TV show Game of Thrones. You reject bar hopping and abhor the elevation of celebrities and gossip magazines. Thus, wretched as you are, you will neither rise from the dead nor enjoy life in the meanwhile. Are we criticized by the world for being so totally absorbed in the interests of a heavenly kingdom and in clinging to Christ? Forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those which are ahead, we are called to press on. Forgetting everything which is of value in this world, be it position, family, video game time, work or school, we must surge beyond that. Things which are good in and of themselves can be hindrances if we see them as having greater value than our relationship with Christ. 
It is as Christ himself said, for what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but is himself destroyed or lost? No, let's press on. The idea of the word for pressing on in verse 14 is like the final lap of the race. The runner sees the end in sight and gives himself the final kick. He doesn't look back, but he runs ahead with all his strength. He gives it all for the sake of the end goal, the finish line, the prize that awaits him. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race which is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul is talking here from a perspective of the Olympic races. When he calls believers to run, to press on, to give it their all, he is comparing their actions to an Olympic event. You are not on the sidelines anymore, brothers and sisters. You are called to the heavenly Olympics. Run. Run the race marked out, with, marked out for you without looking to the side. And without glancing back, this life isn't about us. This life is about serving our maker. And only in serving him will you be able to find ultimate happiness, the prize of eternal life with Christ. That being said, we don't run in our own strength. Rather, we need to look to Jesus Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. He is the one who perfects us and enables us to live by faith. Do you feel weak in that faith? Pray. He will hear your prayer. After all, Jesus Christ is the one to whom it was said, I believe, help my unbelief. And once you have prayed and trusting all to God, go and do. Not because you have your own strength, but because God is working in you. Recall to forget those things in the past which might paralyze you with shame. You must forget those things which drive you to despair. You might struggle with a particular sin, but you're called to put it behind you, to forget it, in order that your entire focus might be on your Savior and Lord. Likewise, with your achievements, you're not called to let them grow so big that they overshadow your lives. With them might come the temptation to go into neutral and coast. It's easy once you're in a comfortable position to go into autopilot, but we are called to put the pedal to the floor. Forget the past in such a way that good or bad, it will not be a dead weight to us in our spiritual walks. At, this, at times, we'll suffer in this life. As terrible as it feels at the time, brothers and sisters, it's not a bad thing. Suffering gives us a chance to glorify God. Paul himself said, For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you, are going to the same, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. It's been granted to us. It gives us a chance to point to Jesus Christ and show to all where our hope is found. Nowhere is there a greater opportunity to have impact when people, than when people observe you when you cry out from the depths of your sorrow. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. When you joyfully embrace the cost of following Christ, you will show his great worth to all. Finding joy in Christ through all things 
draws attention of others to him and awakens in them that very same joy. Whatever our situation, whether it be struggles, whether it be in our achievements, whether it be in our suffering, we're called to focus our minds exclusively on God's calling and so let Christ fill our whole lives. To know Christ, to see who he is and what he has done is to gain Christ. The more we grow in the knowledge of Christ, the greater his work becomes manifest in our lives, the more we can say, I have gained Christ. His work is real for me. So, brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on him. He is calling you to put all your trust in him. If you believe you have received the already of salvation in Christ, now press, hold, press on to take hold of the not yet. Press on in showing your love to your Savior and he will welcome you with open arms and you will hear the beautiful words, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Amen. In response to the word, let us now sing together from hymn 43, the verses 1 to 4.